Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. This week, we explore the theory that the pandemic could be the solution to Australia's long-term housing affordability crisis. Then we take our attention worldwide and look at how property markets from Hong Kong to New Zealand have fared from COVID-induced lockdowns. We'll unpack how their markets have bounced back in the context of the intensity of their lockdown restrictions. Well, Australia's property market is in the midst of a downturn, but we still have some of the most expensive real estate in the world. Rapidly rising prices over the past decade have pushed the great Australian dream of owning your own home out of the reach of many. While recent, previous market drops provided some relief for house hunters, they've done little to improve housing affordability long term. But the latest downturn off the back of the coronavirus pandemic could have a more lasting impact on price growth. And according to Shane Oliver, AMP Capital's Chief Economist and Head of Investment Strategy, it could even fix our housing affordability crisis. Shane, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Alice. Now, Shane, I'd like to start by backtracking a bit for our listeners. Could you tell us what key factors have caused Australia's poor housing affordability? Yeah, that's a good question. It's something that there's a lot of argy-bargy about in the discussion around housing with lots of people having pet theories, some blaming the tax concessions around property, the capital gains tax discount, negative gearing, others blaming immigrants and others just saying it's just a matter of speculation. We wouldn't have too much uh, crazy money to come into the property market. But I think the fundamental driver, if you cut through it all, I think the real driver is the huge surge we saw in population growth that started around the middle of the 2000s, say around 2005. Roughly, we went from about 220,000 people per annum uh, population growth to about 370,000 people per annum. And we went through a long period there, almost 10 years with an undersupply of property. That meant that uh, house prices stayed relatively high compared to people's incomes. And we didn't see that correction that you'd normally see. We've seen a few pullbacks around the time of the GFC. Prices dipped uh, around 2011-12. And then, of course, around 2017, 2019, prices had quite a steep fall in some cities. But of course, uh, as soon as the uh, the underlying problem is gone, such as higher interest rates or the GFC or the uh, tightening in lending conditions that happened a few years ago, as soon as that's relaxed, house prices just bounce back up again and we go back to where we were with poor affordability. Mm. So what we've seen is those downturns, the bounce back has been quite short term, hasn't it? But why do you think this might be different now when we get to this post-pandemic period? I think there's a bunch of factors. Obviously, we're still going through the pandemic and we have seen weakness in property prices around the country, not as bad in Sydney as it is in Melbourne, but generally speaking, prices have softened. I think there's more downside to come because, quite simply, we've got a lot of people being protected by JobKeeper, a lot of people being protected by bank payment holidays. There's almost 500,000 mortgages on payment holidays uh, those protections will come to an end and that will expose the property market to further falls. But I think the real lasting impact will come on three fronts. One is we're probably going to see a long tail of relatively high unemployment. And that's partly because a lot of things are going to bounce back pretty quickly. You know, if you remove the restrictions, people go shop again, people go to the restaurants. 
But there's probably going to be more people shopping online than ever before, more people working at home than ever before. Maybe not as much as through the shutdown itself, but I don't think we're going to go back to the old ways of working five days a week. That means less demand for a whole bunch of things along the way and less jobs. Uh, likewise, travel. I reckon tourism will come back once we get a vaccine, assuming we do, fingers crossed. But I reckon corporate travel is not going to get back to where it was in the past, which is going to have a huge impact on airlines. And so these things will be longer lasting. And the other thing that's happened is that coronavirus has accelerated technological change, some of which I've already referred to. But that, of course, has put uh, more pressure on businesses to cut costs. And that, of course, also adds to unemployment. So I reckon we've got a long tail of unemployment over the next few years, not as high as it is at the moment, but I think it will stay relatively high. Secondly, uh, we've seen that huge hit to immigration. Uh, that was the main factor explaining the poor affordability of housing in Australia. Now, if we're going to have not 240,000 net immigrants coming to Australia each year, but suppose it settles at, uh, say, 100,000 or 80,000, probably a little bit higher than it is at the moment. Government will allow some back in eventually. But I, the 1990s ex experience tells us that when you have high unemployment, it's very hard for governments to ramp up immigration again quickly. It only ramped up again in the middle of the 2000s, a long time after the early 90s recession ended. So I reckon we're in for a long period, several years or so, of pretty constrained immigration. And finally, working from home will have an impact as well. I think more Australians where they can work from home will do so. And in many cases, that might mean they'll relocate to regional centres, to suburbs where property prices are cheaper, which will mean less pressure on property prices in inner city areas. Mm. Shane, I just want to sort of pursue that line you mentioned before about immigration. And we know the forecast for Victoria and immigration, you know, the population forecast of Victoria for the next few decades were very sort of ambitious and um, promising sort of pre-pandemic. How is that going to affect the property market in Victoria in particular, knowing that it is in such a vulnerable state at the moment? I think it's going to have a huge impact. The two cities that benefit the most from immigration um, is Sydney and Melbourne. Um, but if those two cities aren't getting the immigrants in like they used to, then it's going to have a huge impact on property demand, particularly if people start to say, well, I can do my job. I work for uh, the NBN or whoever it is. I can do that just as well out of Adelaide or out of Bathurst or Bendigo or somewhere. Uh, that will have a, um, a big impact on demand for property in Sydney and Melbourne. If we try to sort of look for some glimmers of hope, like I know I'm asking you a tricky question here, but but can you give us perhaps a time frame of what that window will look like? I'm thinking the window will go for about five or six years, uh, short of a crash. I, I don't want to see a crash in property prices. Maybe uh, millennials will say oh, I've got self-interest at heart here. Um, but the reason I don't want to see a crash in property prices is that invariably when you get a crash, 30 40% plunge in prices, it crashes the economy at the same time. The best option is to get prices coming off a little bit, which we're seeing in the short term. Uh, Melbourne's already down, when I last looked, I think it was down 4.5% or something from the highs, depending on whose numbers you look at. Sydney a little bit less, but down nonetheless as well. That probably continues into next year. The best outcome out of that, after maybe, say, a 10 to 15% pullback, is for a long period of constrained property prices uh, where price growth is perhaps a little bit less than wages growth in the economy, that will enable affordability to improve without at the same time crashing the economy. Mm. 
Shane, what are your thoughts on what's going to happen in the regional areas? Are you really thinking this could be their their moment in time to really shine in terms of affordability and accessibility in, in the medium term? It could be, and I think it probably will be. There's, I think, several categories of workers, those who will have to be in the office or in the factory or wherever it is, got no choice, that's the way it is. And there's another group at the other extreme who can do their job remotely full-time. That group is much bigger than we previously thought it was. I can do virtually all of my job from home. Um, so I think this will be a time for regional centres to shine. I must admit, as an economist, I feel a bit schizophrenic on this front because only uh, early this year we had the bushfires going through and that was seen as the death knell for a lot of uh, regional areas. But I think this has given them a huge reprise. Shane, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time and insights. I really enjoyed talking with you. It's been my pleasure and thanks for having me on the program. Now, we've just heard on the longer-term impact the pandemic could have on the Australian property market when it comes to housing affordability. But we're now going to turn our attention abroad to hear of what other countries have experienced as they have emerged from COVID-induced lockdowns. To do this, we're joined by Domain Senior Research Analyst, Dr. Nicola Powell. Nicola, thank you for joining me. Hello, Alice. Nicola, you've pulled together data and analysis from four different countries and looked at the property markets and how they have responded in terms of a bounce back or if they've been flattened in the months following lockdown. So we're able to compare and contrast fairly. You've focused on countries that have experienced different levels of lockdown restrictions. And today we're going to look at Hong Kong, the US, the UK, and then finish with New Zealand. Now, coming from Melbourne, in a longer lockdown again. I'm really eager to hear about this. So let's start with Hong Kong and then make our way around the globe. That sounds like a great plan, Alice. I think, you know, we are in such a unique situation in terms of there are so many unknowns around this global health pandemic. And I think we've really got to look to those other countries uh, to kind of understand what happened post their lockdowns. So what did happen in Hong Kong? So if we look at Hong Kong back in uh, 2003, 2004, during the SARS outbreak, it really helps us to capture an historical series of transactions and prices. And what Hong Kong saw uh, during the SARS outbreak was a slowdown in property transactions. At the heart of the outbreak, they found that transactions dropped by 35% over the June 2003 quarter. And that really was that depth of that outbreak. But I think the key thing to take from Hong Kong and the SARS outbreak was the strong rebound that occurred afterwards. So once they had contained that virus, early in 2004, sales rebounded by 99% compared to the year prior, which is quite a remarkable rebound in terms of that sales activity. And also prices were rising as well during this period. So I think what the key take home for Hong Kong and the SARS outbreak was they found that prices and those sale transactions rose to levels once that virus was contained uh, post that outbreak and they rose to levels uh, well above those seen prior to that outbreak. And Nicola, how did Hong Kong fare this time around in terms of what's happened since COVID hit? 
In early May, Hong Kong emerged from what I would describe as a, a semi-lockdown. And I think, you know, with Hong Kong, the, the housing market has been incredibly resilient because not only have they got political instability, uh, which occurred over 2019, they were also faced with COVID-19 this year. Um, what they found is during this kind of semi-lockdown periods, transactions in April were down 33% compared to the average April over the past five years. But what they found is coming out of that lockdown is in June, those transactions were up 26% compared to the Junes of the five years prior. But I think you know, the difference with Hong Kong is that I, at the moment, they're seeing a much greater interest uh, from investors, which I think is really helping to propel that market into a recovery. Mm. Now, turning to the US, how did they handle the lockdowns and how have they sort of responded post? Granted, they're not completely from it yet, but how are they emerging? So the US experienced a, a pretty steep decline in new listings coming into the market during their lockdown period, which was um, April and May. Um, and I think when you have a look at that recovery, it has been slow and gradual when we look across all of the, the city metro cities across the US. It has been a slow recovery and they're really yet to see those new listings surpass last year's level. And that's kind of th- looking three months post that lockdown. Um, so what they're finding is really that pent-up supply hasn't um, entered the market yet. And they're really finding that there is a lack of stock in the US. It hasn't recovered. If we kind of focus in on one particular city, Detroit, um, it kind of further highlights uh, the recovery, the struggle of recovery that US is is finding. Uh, The COVID pandemic for a bit of history was first confirmed in Michigan, and Detroit is the largest uh, populous city of that state. Now, early March 2020 was when they confirmed their first case. Um, And by the end of March, it was kind of labelled a major uh, disaster was declared. Now, what Detroit found is new listings plummeted during this period, um, but the recovery has been very slow um, and new listings are yet to hit above um, recent years. Um, So there is this, again, this lack of stock, particularly coming uh, into uh, Detroit. And I think, you know, there is a variety of reasons, um, you know, impacting the recovery of uh, the US and Detroit's market. You know, the US continues to battle a wave of infections. Uh, There is increased uncertainty. And I think the housing market is really reacting to this. And obviously, the political instability with an upcoming election is also probably adding a bit of fuel to that fire, I'm guessing. And Nicola, I wonder also the effect of not having a nationwide hard lockdown, like many other countries did, is also sort of creating this rather different reaction, I suppose. I think that is the case. I think, you know, that there were different lockdowns across the US, um, some stricter than others. And I think, you know, that kind of semi-lockdown nature has really impacted the housing market. I mean, if we look towards some other countries that saw some really strict lockdowns, the UK is a pretty strong example of that. What they're finding in the UK is those strict lockdowns really impacted the housing market. Transactions plummeted, new listings plummeted, but they are, you know, the market is opening up. And what they have found in recent weeks is it's unseasonably strong. So there was this lots of pent up demand that had built within that market during the lockdown, which spanned more than 50 days. And again, you know, I will highlight it's a fairly strict lockdown that the UK found. And I think now um, the reports coming out of the UK is that the market activity there is the strongest in five years. So it's really highlighting the strong rebound that they 
they're having post of strict lockdown. Well, and also considering the timing, they've just emerged from their lovely summer break, that it's quite incredible that that sort of bounce has happened during the dead of summer. Absolutely. So, you know, the summer period is uh, kind of a slower time in terms of transactions because people go away on holidays. So I think, you know, it is uh, unseasonable for this particular time of year. And, you know, they're still recording price growth as well uh, within the UK. So, you know, I think it is kind of an example to watch of how they are responding. And I think, you know, the UK has also announced that they are taking a a stamp duty holiday. So it's around kind of 80-ish percent of property transactions are now exempt from paying stamp duty. So I think that is something that is probably drawing a number of residents to transact property. And Nicola, if we go to the last country we're going to talk about today, New Zealand, and that obviously had the most extreme lockdowns of the four countries that we're focusing on with level four restrictions in all of New Zealand for a period. How have they emerged to date? And obviously we will say that they've clearly had an outbreak recently of COVID again, but let's just focus on lockdown one and what the reaction was after they came out of that. Yeah, so New Zealand did go for that elimination approach. And so they had a lockdown that was hard and fast. So very comparable to what we have seen in Greater Melbourne, you know, that stage four lockdown. Now, what New Zealand found is it was an immediate effect on new listing volumes. It made a dramatic, sharp drop. And you know, post that stage four, I mean, as you mentioned, they are currently going through stage three lockdowns and another secondary outbreak. But it has been between those lockdowns, one of the very few countries where life has returned to near normal. So it's a really kind of glowing example to look upon on how Melbourne could react post their stage four lockdown. Now, what they were finding after that stage four is it's really strong market conditions and really is a glowing example of a true V-shaped recovery. Once the stage four lockdown was lifted, the market quickly rebounded back to normal listing levels for that time of year. It was almost an instant switch. And listings in June and July are higher than in recent years. So this, again, unseasonably high level of new listings, very similar to what the UK has reported. And if we compare New Zealand back to the US, you know, unlike the US, new listings have surged higher than normal levels. And, you know, it is that lack of stock in the US, which is really hindering any type of market recovery in in the US. But I think, you know, what New Zealand are are seeing is this expectation of a pent up supply, which occurred during the lockdown really came to fruition. They are seeing a, a rebound in new listings. And if we think about kind of the other side of it, you know, buyer demand, buyer demand in, in New Zealand is reportedly uh, matching that seller activity. So these two things together really do show that New Zealand is experiencing a true V-shaped recovery. It's What's intriguing to me is that sort of you can surmise that the harder the lockdown, the more sort of bounces in that recovery, isn't it? That's absolutely it. I mean, when we look across all of these cities across the globe, there is strong evidence that suggests once restrictions are eased and strict restrictions are eased and the outbreak is under control, confidence in new listings improves and we see a stronger recovery in those markets that have had a stricter lockdown. Well, Nicola, we will soon have our own example to have a good, hard look at in the coming weeks and months. So I look forward to discussing that with you as well. But thank you for today. It was really, really interesting looking at those other countries all around the world. Thank you again. Thanks for having me, Alice. 
Well, that's all for today. Thank you for joining us. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question we could help answer, let us know. You can send us an email at propertyunpacked@domain.com.au. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for further episodes dropping every Thursday. Property Unpacked is hosted by me, Alice Stoltz. This episode was produced by Adrian Lowe, Kate Burke and Daniel Giannopoulos. It was edited and mixed by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au.